We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. As I was preparing the sermon for this morning, I came across an interesting connection between the book of Romans and the country of Romania. Uh, The book of Romans is our primary focus in these months as we are moving verse by verse through chapters 1 and 2. And later this year, we will be sending uh, a team from our church to the city of Galati in Romania to do mission work with a planted church that is there. And the connection that I came across is a man by the name of Dimitru Cornelesu. I think, maybe that's how you say it, Dimitru Cornelesu. Cornelesu was a Romanian born in the late 1800s and a member of the Orthodox Church. Um, Even today, more Romanians align themselves with the Orthodox Church than any other religious denomination in the country. And the Orthodox Church there in Romania is very heavy on forms and on rituals, but it is very light on truth and gospel. Well, Cornelesu was preparing to become a priest in the Orthodox Church when he took upon himself the task of translating the Bible into Romania, into the Romanian language. He had come to believe that it would be good for literate Romanians to be able to read the Bible in their own language. And as Cornelesu was translating the Scriptures he came to a particular book of the Bible, the book of Romans, in which the gospel of Jesus Christ became clear to him for the very first time. And he responded with repentance and faith and was converted. He became an evangelical. And for that, at this time in Romania, he was exiled out of the country and lived in the nation of Switzerland. In 1921, residing in Switzerland, he finished his translation of the Romanian Scriptures, a translation that is still used in that country today. Now, I hope that will serve as just another reminder to us of how precious this book of Romans is. And how mightily God has used this letter in the past to save people's souls and to change the course of history. This is a powerful book in the hands of a powerful God. And I am praying that He will do powerful things through us and in us as we continue studying it together. Well, over the number of weeks that we have studied Uh, the second half of chapter 1, we've seen that Paul has been indicting the entire human race as guilty before God. 
and deserving of His wrath. And Paul was doing this so that we might see our own need for the gospel, that we might see the need of others for the gospel. He has gone to great lengths in chapter 1 to help us grasp with our heads and to help us feel in our hearts our own wickedness so that we will be all the more grateful for Jesus and for the cross. Until sin be bitter to us, Christ will not be sweet to us. And so having addressed the depravity of the human race in chapter 1, Paul now narrows his focus in chapter 2 and addresses a particular kind of person. The kind of person that Paul has in mind here is the kind who will read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, and say, oh yes, there are many people in the world like that. Murderers, adulterers, workers of all sorts of evil, and they deserve the wrath of God. I am sure glad that I'm not like them. It's the self-righteous. Those who do not see themselves in Romans 1. Those who are quick to judge others, but slow to recognize their own condition. That is whom Paul has in mind here. In verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul describes this person in two ways. He describes this person as one who judges others. And he describes this person as one who does the very same things for which he judges others. In other words, the man that Paul is addressing in Romans 2 is a hypocrite. The man Paul has in mind is one who agrees that God is right and just to condemn others to sin, but God is not right to condemn him. He, or she, is the exception to the rule, he thinks. And friends, we are all prone to see the sins of others as more deserving of judgment and condemnation than our own. We are prone to see the sins of others as worse than our own sins. How often are we the one who points the finger at others and demand that they be punished when we ourselves are guilty of equally heinous crimes? And sometimes the very things that we're pointing out in others. Our hearts at times can be so filled with self-love that we are the guilty ones, that when we are the guilty ones, we find ways to excuse our sin. We find ways to make ourselves the victim. Though we certainly don't treat others that way. A classic example of this is Al Capone. Capone was a Chicago gang leader who sat atop the FBI's most wanted list for years. He was declared public enemy number one. Al Capone was a hardened criminal. He was a murderer. And yet, how did he see himself? On one occasion, Al Capone said this, I have spent the best years of my life giving people the lighter pleasures, helping them to have a good time, and all I get is abuse, the existence of a hunted man. 
Now, if Al Capone thought that he could justify his sins, if he thought that he could excuse the things that he had done, how much more are we tempted to look at our own sins as small, minor, excusable, worthy of being overlooked by God? Well, God in His wisdom and in His love for us has given us this passage to remove that false idea from our brains. God desires us to see ourselves for who we truly are. And in this passage, He does so by turning our own weapon against us. That gun of judgmentalism that we point at others, he now turns on us. Because every time, he says, that we judge others for their sins, we are revealing something about ourselves. We are showing our cards, so to speak. Because every time we judge somebody else, we are giving evidence that we really do know that those sins are wrong and worthy of condemnation. And since we've shown this by judging others, when it comes our time to be judged by God, we will have no excuse. We will not be able to plead ignorance before God. I I didn't know that was wicked. I didn't know that was worthy of judgment. Really? You sure thought it was worthy of judgment when you saw it in so-and-so? On the day of judgment, God will see right through our flimsy lies. And the fact that we judged others for these things will stand as evidence against us so that there will be nothing more we can say. As Paul says in verse 1, we will have no Excuse. Now, the kind of person that Paul is addressing here is probably one who is outwardly very moral. Paul is addressing those considered decent folk by the world. These are not murderers. These are not fornicators. These are not embezzlers or thieves. These are good old boys and girls. And yet God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, tells us that when we judge others, we are guilty of the same things ourselves. And we will be held accountable. Now wait a minute, how how can Paul say that? I mean, I'm, I'm not a murderer, right? Isn't that what you're thinking, right? How how can Paul say that I'm guilty of the same things that all those other people were committing in in Romans 1, right? I've never killed anybody. I'm not an adulterer. How dare Paul try and group me in with all those other people? How dare he say that I'm guilty of the same things as those people that I like to judge? Paul can say that because he's only echoing the teaching of Jesus. I know there are many today who try and pit Paul against Jesus and make it seem as if Paul taught one thing and Jesus taught a different thing and and you can read the Gospels and see one message and you can read the letters of Paul and see another message and I I choose the message of Jesus, not that Paul stuff. 
Folks, that is a very false way of reading the Bible. Paul and Jesus didn't teach different messages. They taught the same message. It was Jesus who made Paul an apostle. It was Jesus who commissioned him to be one of his spokesmen. It was Jesus who, through the Holy Spirit, gave Paul the words to say in Romans 2. Therefore, it should not surprise us that Paul's words right here fall right in line with the very same things that Jesus taught in person when he was walking the earth. And the reason that Paul can say you are guilty of the same things that you judge in others is because that's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? What did Jesus teach? Jesus taught that it was possible to be a murderer even if you've never murdered. Jesus taught that it is possible to be an adulterer even if you've never committed adultery. Because it is the heart that God sees. And our actions are an expression of what is in our hearts. So maybe the murderous anger that is in the heart of one man moves him to actually commit murder. Yet perhaps in you, that murderous anger in your heart is expressed differently. Perhaps in you it is expressed through anger towards someone. And venomous words spoken directly to an enemy. And slanderous words spoken behind their backs. Or perhaps you merely carry a bitterness and hatred towards someone in your heart. A poison eating away at your soul. You you may never have committed adultery. But perhaps you've looked at a woman who is not lawfully yours and coveted her. Perhaps you have looked upon a man whom God has not given to you as your husband and wanted him. Like Eve eyeing the forbidden fruit, you have eyed another person in a magazine or on a computer screen and and lusted after them. Will you now point to others? And suggest that there is something fundamentally evil about them. They need to be punished while pretending to be squeaky clean yourself. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judges those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You will not. For the fact that you judge others for their sins show that you know these things to be wrong and therefore you have no excuse when those things appear in your own life. The seeds of sin and others are the same seeds that are in your own heart. And your willingness to condemn others will condemn you on the last day. What does it mean to judge others? What does it mean to be judgmental? I mean, we as Christians, we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to look down on others as though we're somehow better than them. We know as Christians that our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Christ. And if we look down on others as, we, as, if, as if there's something in better in us than there is in them, we deny the very gospel we preach. 
God save us from being judgmental. But we must know what it is if we're to avoid it. So, for that purpose, allow me to make three statements about what I think being judgmental does not mean. And that way I think I can better answer the question of what being judgmental does mean. Number one, it is not being judgmental to recognize sin in another's life. It is not being judgmental to recognize sin in another's life. And we know this because the Bible commands us to recognize sin in others' lives. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught, entangled, ensnared in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, we're not going to be able to obey that commandment, and we're not going to be able to love one another the way God has called us to love one another if we think that noticing another sin is being judgmental. If we seek to put blinders over our eyes and look away whenever someone in our church family is sinning, we are failing them and we're failing to obey the Word of God. We are taught that real love does notice sin in the lives of others and seeks to help them lose those sins for their own good and the good of others and the glory of God. Second, it is not being judgmental to inform someone of their sins. We've come to a place in American culture in which many think that telling someone directly what they're doing wrong is necessarily judgmental. Yet over and over again in scriptures, we are taught to admonish one another. We are taught to draw people's attention to their sins so that those sins can be dealt with in Christ. Friends, it's impossible to preach the gospel without informing people of their sin. And it's exactly what Paul's doing here in Romans 1 and 2. So it's not judgmental to see sin in others. And it's not judgmental to draw their attention to their sin. Third, it is not judgmental to inform others of someone else's sin. And we know this is true because Jesus Himself taught in Matthew 18 that if we are seeking to help someone deal with a sin in their life and they refuse to listen, we should tell that sin to others who can come alongside and help admonish that sinning brother or sister. So think about this. This is contrary to the way we usually think. It is not judgmental to see sin in another person. It is not judgmental to, to inform someone of their sin. It is not judgmental to inform others of the sin of someone. But if that's not being judgmental, what is being judgmental? Being judgmental is doing any of those three things with any other motivation but love. Being judgmental is doing any of those three things with an attitude that you are better than the other person. Being judgmental is doing any of those three things without pointing to Christ and the grace that He offers. 
If you notice sin in the lives of others and you notice their sins more than your own sin, that is being judgmental. If you inform someone of their sins and you do that with a heart not motivated by love, and your words are not seasoned with humility and gentleness, and your desire is not to point them to Christ and the way of forgiveness and of freedom, then that is being judgmental. Don't do it. And if you inform anyone else of the sins of someone without having their good and the glory of God as your utmost desire and your only reason for doing so, then that is being judgmental. If there is any arrogance in our hearts, if there's any lack of love, any, any lack of genuine concern for the person you are dealing with, then we ought to keep our mouth shut and get the plank out of our own eye first. Because we've got our own sins of pride and lovelessness to deal with. And only once that plank has been removed and you are filled with humility and you are filled with love and you have genuine concern for that person, only then can you deal with their sins without being judgmental. Paul, here, is dealing with our sin. Paul, here, is informing you and me of our sin. And yet he's doing so not in a judgmental way but out of love, out of concern for our souls, out of a desire that we would run to Christ. And that's the example that we should follow. How does God deal with those who are judgmental? How does God relate to those who refuse to see their own radical corruption, their own desperate need for Christ? How does God relate to those who judge others but believe themselves to be above judgment? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Notice, he doesn't say that God's judgment falls on these people. He doesn't just say that. He says that we already know that God is right in doing this. We know, he says, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And I take that to mean hypocrisy. Those who judge others but don't see the sin in themselves. He says, we know that God rightly judges those people. Now some say that Paul here is, is speaking mainly to the Jews. Those who know the law of God very well. And that's why Paul can assume they know that God is just in judging hypocrisy. They know it because they have God's word and God's word says so. And I do think Paul has the Jews mainly in mind here. But I don't think that's all he has in mind. It seems to me that these words extend to all people and that Paul's words here extend particularly to any who have a spirit of judgmentalism we see someone else being self-righteous, if we see someone else being full of themselves, if we see someone else looking down on others, aren't we the first to say, that is disgusting, that ought to be judged. We don't even want to be around such a person. And the fact that we know that that is wicked in them 
shows that we know that it is wicked in us. And therefore, if that describes us, God's judgment rightly falls on us. This verse ought to frighten any of us in this room who have any trace of confidence in ourselves. If there is any secret corner of your heart that still believes that there is something in your character or something that you have done that makes you deserving of God's grace, these verses are for you. These verses are meant to awaken you. Judgment is coming on such people. You must rid yourself of any self-confidence, any notion that there's anything in you that makes you good in the sight of God. Rather, you must put all of that away and rely 100% on Jesus Christ alone. Do not split up your hope. You cannot say, I'm going to trust Christ to get me to heaven. But if He fails, I'm also going to hold out hope that there's something in me or something that I've done that might make up for it and make me pleasing to God. That is the arrogance that leads to judgmentalism. This idea that there's something good in me. This is the attitude that robs God of His glory. And this is the devil's ploy to keep you secretly believing that you really don't need Jesus all that much and you really don't need the gospel all that much. Christian friends, before Christ came to you and me, there was nothing good in us that made us attractive to the eyes of God. You may have been precious in your own sight, but your failure and your refusal to trust and obey God made you as despicable in God's sight as Satan himself. God looks at His Son and He sees purity and He sees holiness. He looks at Satan and He sees vileness and dishonesty and pride. God looks at His Son and He rightly loves His Son. God looks at Satan and He rightly abhors and detests Satan. What does God see when He looks at you? Are you, in your natural state, apart from Jesus, more like Christ or like Satan? Does not the Bible and your own experience and your conscience, if it's working right, all testify to you that in your natural state you are more like the devil than you are like the Son of God? This was true before you were saved. And it's true of any man, woman, or child in this room who even now is outside of Christ. Now these are tough words, but sometimes it takes tough words to break through the hardened heart of a judgmental man or woman. It is because I love you. It is because I want you to see yourself the way God sees you. The way you really are. That we say these things. For those of us who are in Christ, when God looks at us now, He sees the righteousness of Christ. 
By grace, we are justified in His sight. We are counted righteous before Him. We are sons and daughters bearing His image and soon to be with Him forever. When God looks at us in Christ, He sees Christ and therefore He loves us and we are safe and secure in His love forever. But apart from Christ, apart from Christ, we are detestable. Because we do not look like in and of ourselves the Son of God. We look, more, we look more like Adolf Hitler or Jeffrey Dahmer than we do like Jesus Christ. Because the seeds of sin that were in them are in our hearts too. And you won't find any trace of that in Christ. If you are here this morning and you are outside of Christ... How can you possibly entertain the notion that God will not judge you? Do you think he's wicked? Do you think God is unrighteous? Because that's what he would have to be to not judge those who are wicked. It is because God is good that he will judge and he must judge and he will make no apology for doing so. Today, in His kindness, God is offering you salvation. God in His mercy has chosen to save for Himself a people. Jesus bore the wrath these people deserved on the cross in their place. These people have forgiveness of sins. Their hearts have been changed. These people are being made holy. They will one day be fully rid of any sin in their lives. They'll look much more like Jesus than anything like Adolf Hitler. That day is coming. And these people are called Christians, followers of Jesus. And you can be counted among their number if you will only see for yourself who you are and how badly you need Christ and then flee to Him and rest in Him forever. That's what these verses are designed to do in us. God today provides you an opportunity to be saved. You do not deserve this opportunity. You do not deserve this offer of salvation. It is only pure kindness and grace that God has brought you here this morning. It is only God's kindness and grace that I am here as an ambassador for Him bringing you this message. Will you not humble yourself, see God's love for you in Christ, and turn to Him and be saved? For it's too late. And his patience ends. And the day of judgment comes. Or maybe you think that somehow you're going to escape God's judgment. You who are so quick to judge others actually think that God is going to fail to judge you. And that's Paul's point in verse 3. See verse 3? Look at it. Do you see it? Do you suppose, O man, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Did he hear the argument? 
It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If others do not escape your judgment and you are but a man, how do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God Himself? Does He not see all things? Does He not hold you and all humanity in the palm of His hands, able to do with you as He wills at any moment? Where are you going to flee from His presence? Where are you going to hide? There is nowhere you can run or hide. When God determines to deal with you, He will deal with you. Ask Jonah. And could it be, could it be that even now God is dealing with you? Not in judgment, but in mercy. Could it be that today, is the day of your salvation. Let me be clear. God is holy. We have all, me first, rebelled against Him and are deserving of hell. God in His great love has made a way of salvation by giving His Son Jesus to die on our behalf. The salvation that He gives includes our sins being forgiven, us being reconciled to God, us being given the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us, being made ready for heaven, and then eventually being taken there to dwell with God forever. The only condition that God gives for receiving this salvation is that we raise the white flag of surrender and give ourselves to God. We do this in our hearts. We show it by being baptized in Jesus' name. And we spend the rest of our lives on earth resting in God's promises, trusting that He's good and wise, and seeking to obey His commands. O man or woman or child in this room who is so quick to judge others, but so slow to see your own judgment coming, will you not now humble yourself and be saved. Run to Christ now and find safety in Him. Let's pray.